Past Dark is intended for adults only. Listener discretion is advised. This is part two of a three-part series. While so much of the country was living in a time of relative peace and prosperity, Pol Pot was plotting in the mountains to end it all. He had ascended to the head of the Cambodian Communist Party in 1963, where he aligned himself with the Vietnamese communists and began planning and shaping what would become the Khmer Rouge. In the years since his return from France, he had become ever more radicalized, building a cadre of like-minded communists, numbering only about 250 at its inception but exceptional in its zeal. The K.R. would base their renunciation of the modern world on the example set by Buddhist monks, where everything you owned, even your identity, was abandoned. Pol Pot's ideal was a class he called old people, a simple peasant race cleansed of all Occidental influence, religion, and education. Only by draining the blood out of the nation could new blood, new ideas, his ideas, permanently reshape society. The starkness of his plan was not apparent to its earliest adherents, lost as it was in a larger communist dialogue. Much of his political leanings would emerge as nothing more than window dressing for genocide. He kept much of his grand vision to himself in these early days, tailoring his message to appeal to his audience and playing a cat-and-mouse game with the sympathies of the nation as he poised himself for takeover. The secret heart of the ideology was an agrarian mythos, a philosophy of racial purity and lost glory. Many genocides begin with just such a misguided idealism, a yearning for a superior age and the return of a superior man. Hitler had his Aryans, and Pol Pot had the great Khmer Empire, and both sought to purge their countries of anyone who did not fit their ethnic and ideological ideal. And just as Hitler had decadent Berlin as a prime example of everything he sought to destroy. So Pol Pot had Phnom Penh, a cosmopolitan cesspool that needed to be bled dry. But the city was bursting all its seams as the Civil War took hold in 1968, and up to a million refugees would flee the countryside throughout the conflict into the relative safety of the capital. 
It began as a communist-led uprising in the rural provinces against the established government of Cambodia, whose infighting and shifting allegiances led to Sihanouk himself being deposed in March of 1970 by Lon Nol, a right-wing pro-U.S. conservative whose militancy and heavy-handedness would drive ever more Cambodians into the arms of the Khmer Rouge. It didn't help matters that Sihanouk was vacationing on the French Riviera at the time, only curtailing his trip when word of more unrest back home drove him to visit Moscow, begging the Soviets to order the communists out of Cambodia in hopes of quieting things down. On his way out of the city, as he was being driven to the airport, a Soviet foreign minister broke the news to Sihanouk that he had been dethroned in absentia. Lon Nol would become notorious for his short-lived Khmer Republic, a military dictatorship in all but name. Troops spread over the countryside in an effort to quell rebellion, but these methods only led to more uprisings. Nol would also allow American troops fighting the Vietnamese into the country, blowing apart their long-held neutrality and fostering yet more hatred for the U.S., who had embarked on a catastrophic and secret bombing campaign against Cambodia. The U.S. had bombed the nation before, in 1965 under Lyndon Johnson. Focusing on the southern border with Vietnam, it was a more tactical affair, with more careful attention paid to avoiding civilian targets, though there was, as always, collateral damage. But the campaign launched by Nixon in 1969 was so egregious that he ordered it hidden from the American public, who were already in revolt against this increasingly unpopular war. Days before the first bombings, he told Henry Kissinger, his national security advisor, no comment, no warnings, no complaints, no protests. I mean it. Not one thing is to be said to anyone publicly or privately, without my prior approval. Nixon was famously paranoid and angered at the Viet Congs darting in and out along Cambodia's border in constant battle with the U.S. Sihanouk had turned a blind eye to the goings-on, insisting yet again that Cambodia was taking no sides. But as the diplomat John Foster Dulles famously proclaimed, you are either with us or against us. And with the Viet Cong attacking the south of Vietnam with impunity, Nixon decided to hit back to show the VC just how bloodthirsty the U.S. could be and without sacrificing innocent, i.e. American, lives. It was an act akin to cutting off your neighbor's nose to spite your enemy's face. 
So, in spring of 1969, the bombs began falling over Cambodia. Nixon would sign the order just as he arrived back home from attending church. 2.7 million tons of bombs would fall, and the deluge would not cease completely until 1973. Casualty estimates vary widely according to the source, with the military claiming 4,000, and other in-country sources claiming up to as many as 300,000. Pilots involved in the campaign were under the president's own command and were instructed to falsify records and lie to their own superiors. This atrocity would be named Operation Menu, and the first series of bombs were named Breakfast. So pleased was he at this first foray that Nixon gleefully roared, we should let him have it again, crack the hell out of him. This complete lack of regard for civilian loss of life or international law, Nixon would call, in a rare moment of honesty, the madman theory of war. Nixon even entertained using a nuclear weapon, but was thankfully dissuaded from this by Kissinger. In 1970, the U.S. openly invaded Cambodia, with the Pentagon referring to the nation as a, quote, docile and passive people who cannot be relied on to act in a positive way for the benefit of American policies. Nixon gave an address to the American public who were entirely ignorant of the fact that Cambodia had been under U.S. attack for over a year. We take this action not for the purpose of expanding the war into Cambodia, but for the purpose of ending the war in Vietnam and winning the just peace we all desire. But we will not be humiliated. We will not be defeated. We will not allow American men by the thousands to be killed by an enemy from privileged sanctuary. As the invasion got underway, Nixon hunkered down in the White House, got drunk, and watched his favorite film, Patton, later calling up Kissinger to tell him, if this doesn't work, it'll be your ass, Henry. It would prove, for everyone involved, a disaster. Music was growing darker, harder, and heavier as bombs, invasions, and a deposed monarch provided a depressing debut for the 1970s. Sihanouk had finally lost favor with many pop stars who embraced the new republic, at least on the surface, and were tasked with writing a trove of cloying nationalistic pop songs. Sihanouk wrote many of them, and performed for the Republican military. 
Rousseri Sitea recorded a track called The Traitor, which was a direct criticism of the deposed prince and her former patron, an act that would have been unheard of just a few years before. She even became a parachutist for the Republican Army and was filmed during maneuvers as she leapt from the plane, sailing down to the ground and giving a short interview afterwards, full of smiles. It is the only remaining footage of her in existence. The cheerful pop of yesteryear was evaporating in the grim dawn of a new decade. Tracker, or Thraka Band, as it is sometimes written, was a prime example of the new breed. They had formed in 1967, counting Baxi Cham Krong and the Rolling Stones as early influences, but disbanded and then reformed with a new lineup in the early 70s. Touch Chatha, the lead guitarist and vocalist, had his own rock radio show on national radio throughout the early 70s and was known for his fierce guitar playing. But band members recall gigs where the twin guitars of Chata and rhythm guitarist Touch Tana didn't quite cover the sound of explosions and gunfire. A curfew was enacted which made it impossible to play gigs at night, so nightclubs became day clubs, and the bands played on. Performing covers of Deep Purple, Grand Funk Railroad, and Santana, who were particularly popular in Cambodia, as well as their own originals. Jacquard toured U.S. military bases in Vietnam, where they proved popular. They backed up singer Mao Seref on the Latin-influenced Have You No Mercy, and recorded their sole LP themselves using rudimentary technology between 1972 and 1973, though it wouldn't be released until 74. While Touch Tana would go on to say that he didn't think that Cambodia was ready for a hard rock band like Drakkar, it would become the highest selling full-length album up to that time in Cambodia, moving 20,000 copies. But perhaps the most definitive artist and the last flower in the freedom before the end was the singer, guitarist, and lyricist Yal Alaram. <laughs> He's been called Cambodia's proto-punk, 
a bad boy, a certifiable maniac. He emerged from a well-known musical family, spending some of his early childhood in France, where his father was a diplomat. He claimed to have no ambition for money or fame, and was openly critical of conservative mores, and was cheeky and sarcastic in his lyrics. No respecter of persons, he met Sihanouk's half-brother and told him, You're a prince, I'm not, but we will all die, so who cares, let's have a drink. Jean Cougette, translated into English as Broken-Hearted Man, as Alarong's fuzzed-out Santana-infused take on Gloria. Another hit, Ciclo, is considered one of the most emblematic Cambodian rock songs of the era. wherein Alaron is riding on his cyclo through the city, musing about the girls and their clothes and why their hippie blouses make them look pregnant. The snotty humor and Alaron's distorted guitar perfectly encapsulate his legend in that moment in time. And his name would later become a sort of password shared among the young in the darkness just over the horizon. The sunshine sound of Poe Venari brought a little brightness and innocence into the scene. She was another heavily Western-influenced artist in the vein of the gentle folky, whose covers of American tunes like James Taylor's You Got a Friend were huge hits in the early 70s. She sang and played guitar, a rarity, and her ability to speak English meant she could translate into Khmer often singing both in the same song. This made her quite popular among the young, who were often eager to learn English. And Venari's songs, besides being lovely, were the perfect teacher. Her open-hearted voice was on heavy rotation on national radio, a counterpoint to the troubled world outside. The political foundation of Cambodia continued to disintegrate. Since being deposed, Sihanouk had been, 
in the words of Walter Cronkite, working to overthrow the people that had overthrown him. He appealed to China, who assured Sihanouk military support in his effort to overthrow Lan Nol. So the king formed his own resistance, the National United Front of Kampuchea, Khmer name for Cambodia. His popularity in the countryside was still considerable, almost godlike, and Pol Pot decided that the best move would be to exploit this to the utmost. He, of course, knew that his own grand plan ran completely counter to everything Sihanouk held dear. And Sihanouk was known to hate communists, but each saw in the other a pawn in their own political maneuverings. As soon as the prince publicly aligned with the KR, their numbers multiplied rapidly. Numbers Sihanouk dreamed of utilizing in his reclamation of his throne. He said later that he was not even aware that Pol Pot was the leader of the Cambodian Communist Party. But he would be later criticized for his opportunism and emboldening the killers of a nation. And with every U.S. bomb dropped, every brutality suffered from Nall's troops, with every memory of their beloved deposed king, rural Cambodians were pushed more and more towards the Khmer Rouge. War and misery had shattered the nation, and a traumatized populace were easily placated by false promises of imminent peace and solidarity, with Father Sihanouk, a folk hero, a straw man, Patsy as figurehead. The deposed king had set up his own government in exile in China, who had, along with North Vietnam and Korea, proclaimed Lan Nol's government illegitimate. Sino continued to meet with Khmer Rouge officers, touring the provinces throughout 1973 to gather more soldiers to the cause. By 1975, it was clear that the Republic's army were no longer able to beat back the KR, and Lan Nol resigned on April the 1st, 1975, and promptly fled the country. The sense of a coming storm was palpable. April is the hottest month, and tempers were fraying as foreigners began leaving the capital city in droves. American diplomats were flown out in helicopters from the U.S. Embassy when American forces, losing interest in Cambodia after their pro-U.S. regime toppled, officially withdrew on April the 12th, taking aid with them. American ambassador to Cambodia, John Gunter Dean, refers to it as the day the United States abandoned Cambodia and handed it over to the butcher. He rescued hundreds, stuffing as many of his Cambodian colleagues and their families into the waiting military helicopters, as was allowed. He was famously photographed carrying the American flag that had flown above the embassy, away in a plastic bag. He said, in an interview many years later. We'd accepted responsibility for Cambodia and then walked out without fulfilling our promise. 
that's the worst thing a country can do. And I cried because I knew what was going to happen. April 16th, the beginning of the Buddhist New Year in Cambodia. The Khmer Rouge seizes the airport, shutting down all flights. There would be no more aerial escapes. The airport lay just outside Phnom Penh. The capital city was now surrounded. Electricity was intermittent, and at times the only lights that night were the artillery explosions and gunfire that crept into the borders of the sweltering city. Then, April 17, 1975. The first armored vehicles rolled down the wide boulevards that morning. Republican forces waving white flags of surrender. Behind them, the unmistakable black clothing and red checkered scarf called a chroma of the Khmer Rouge forces. The long civil war was over. Lan Nol's soldiers had folded, many happily. Joy was the prevailing mood, and many Cambodians would later remark that in that moment, it didn't matter who had won, just that the long struggle was over. The new government would probably not impact their lives more than the years of civil war already had, they reasoned. But most stayed nervously indoors that day, watching the river of troops pouring down the boulevards from afar, wondering at the still persistent gunfire that kept popping up all over the city. Then the mood shifted. The first arrivals of KR troops had been friendly, almost casual, as they waved to the festive crowds who ran out to greet them. But the new arrivals strode in unsmiling, brandishing weapons and small arms of every description. A slow trickle of panic rippled throughout the city as the KR began the first orders of evacuation, whose message came from every gun-wielding soldier and from the loudspeakers mounted atop trucks that crept through the neighborhoods, blasting its ominous message in staccato. The reason, where one was given at all, was that the city was about to be destroyed by the Americans. For the million refugees in the city at that moment, many who were victims of previous U.S. bombs, it was easy enough to believe. But it was a lie, crafted to enable the Khmer Rouge to succeed in forcing a whole body of humankind, a city with a population of Houston or Chicago, onto the streets. The sick and dying were driven out of their hospital beds, and some were being carried bodily by their relatives. Surgeons in the middle of operations had been forced to abandon their patients. Houses were abandoned with the doors left unlocked, by orders of the K.R. Families were told to bring only a few possessions, and many were placated with the promise that they would be allowed to return in a matter of days. There was confusion, 
a sense of emotional whiplash. Banks were being blown up, its currency, and the entire framework of the economy, rendered worthless by the new regime. Looting began, with KR's soldiers draping themselves with watches, radios, jewelry. So many of Pol Pot's forces, perhaps the vast majority, were from rural provinces, teenagers who had never even visited the capital. They veered between childlike curiosity about the city around them and sudden brutality. Word had spread among some musicians that a hippie had been shot outside the city and a few paused to cut their hair, touch Chata of Drakkar band among them. Others cobbled together all black ensembles that they hastily put on, hoping to pass as a soldier. Rumors of separations of families happening at checkpoints filtered back, bringing with them a greater foreboding. But as the day sped on in a haze of confusion and fear, there were still some with a dim yet persistent hope that surely, while the behavior of some of the soldiers was questionable, the regime itself had good intentions. They were, after all, liberators who had ended the war, who were rescuing them from death by American bombs. But the increasing eruptions of gunfire and the realization that they were in the crosshairs of an entire army quickly emptied the city, leaving no time for rumination and no room for rebellion. Within three hours, most of the city was on the move. All weapons were confiscated and piled ominously behind the phalanx of soldiers stationed at checkpoints heading out of the city, whose four major highways were now choked with human beings. And within 72 hours, Phnom Penh, this pearl of Asia, 262 miles square, was a ghost town. And it wasn't only Phnom Penh that would be emptied, turned upside down until every resident was shook loose. The same thing occurred in the cities of Batabong, Kampong Cham, Siem Reap, Kampong Thom, every town of any size all over the country. They did it with lies, with promises, and with guns. There were but a few pivotal hours, perhaps even less for some, before the fog of hope, of wishful thinking, gave way to a terrible clarity. And by then, the mass exodus had already begun, drifting past an ever-increasing number of bodies along the roadside. And over the next few days, the silence of shock began to settle over the people. Many recall a pervasive sense of unreality, that it couldn't be happening. And if it was happening, it couldn't be that bad. And how could anyone imagine, in their wildest nightmares, what awaited them? It is estimated that in the fall of Phnom Penh, at least 5,000 died in the first couple of days. Many were some of the estimated 20,000 hospital patients who were forced to evacuate despite their frailty. 
an unknown number were massacred and left behind where they fell. The Exodus was forced to camp as well as they could, sleeping outside along the road. The small stores of food provided initially by the Khmer Rouge exhausted themselves nearly immediately. Families shared what they had, and by morning, they were on the march again. Cars began to be abandoned as they ran out of gas or suffered flat tires. Checkpoints were hastily set up to manage the crowds, who were already, unknowingly, being sorted to their fates. So began Year Zero, the wiping clean of the slate of the nation. The Khmer Rouge, who would also be known as Angkor, began their process of the eradication of nearly all the foundations of Cambodian society. From the religious to the familial, every strand of connection between human beings was rapidly severed, every kind of community destroyed, and all would be replaced with Angkor. The length and breadth of this destruction is almost unfathomable. Your identity, your work, your religious beliefs, everything you owned, your ability to choose where you live and who you marry and who you lived with, and very often, your children, all were swept away. Buddhist monasteries, which were the centers of community life and education, as well as their spiritual core, were closed, and many monks summarily executed on sight. Families were dissolved on a whim, and members could be executed for communicating with one another. All forms of identity, passports, medical records, educational records, and the like were ordered destroyed, and postal and telephone services halted. Schools of every kind, hospitals, stores, public works, and all industries save munitions and weapons factories were shuttered or repurposed for Angkor. Friendships were discouraged, lest cells of resistance form. Bonds were further eroded by the rewards one earned by turning in your comrades for transgressions, such as showing too much emotion. Even dress was homogenized, with everyone wearing the same black peasant pajamas and krama, and every female, from toddlers to grandmothers, were told to cut their hair in a blunt bob. One after the other, everything of love, individuality, fellow feeling, joy, even colors themselves, were suppressed, outlawed, or erased. First came the emptying of the cities, followed by the entire population, whether rural or otherwise, being pushed into the interior. All who had survived the exodus and its ominous checkpoints were funneled into vast agricultural camps, where days lasting 16 hours or more were initially devoted to planting rice, the crop central to the success of Pol Pot's agrarian blueprint for self-sufficiency. But rice would not be ready for harvest for six months, giving only two crops a year. After reaping, most were taken to be sold as exports. Malnutrition and starvation began 
almost immediately. Attempts at stealing food were met with beatings and outright execution. Most were fed only a thin rice porridge twice a day, and the covert gathering of insects for food provided the only protein many would have for years, despite unrelenting labor. And this labor was made as archaic and inefficient as possible, with a total abandonment of any modern methods of cultivation and land management. Heavy machinery was forbidden, so ditches were dug, dams and levees built, and crops tilled entirely by hand, just as Angkor dreamed their ancestors had done. People of every age who had never held a hoe were suddenly working 16-hour days without rest, without proper food, and in a state of terror. But all this derangement was necessary, the regime argued, because society must be remade from the ground up. The toxins of modernity, colonialism and capitalism were so deep in the bones of the nation that everything not deriving from Angkor was suspect and worthy of exclusion. Drastic and immediate measures were needed, and re-education, brutal as it was, was only the tempering of the people into something greater. The problem was that construction never followed destruction. The grand experiment had stalled at the first step. Ideologically, the Khmer Rouge had put forth a platform known as the Four-Year Plan, but this would only be drawn up in the summer of 1976 and was never wholly put into practice. The fact that the nation had already been completely upended for over a year before such a plan was even decided upon betrays the hollowness of the intentions of the regime. From the obvious misstep of moving millions into the rural interior to grow crops outside the growing season, to providing little food for the population, to expecting unrealistically high yields using Stone Age methods, at every turn the regime's poor planning was endemic. They were tough soldiers, but useless statesmen. On paper, at least, they claimed that all that had been destroyed would be remade. The schools would be reopened with new revolutionary curriculum. The factories would start running again. You would even be able to use the telephone. Cambodia would emerge as an agrarian superpower, and everyone would have more than enough to sustain them. But first, we must destroy you, and then remake you. There would be no choice, and what would not be hardened would be crushed. Next time, the artists, the music, and the soul of Cambodia goes dark. Vietnam topples the Khmer Rouge, and the horrible toll, and the survivors are counted. Past Dark is written and produced by Carmen Park. Original music by Skillpack. <laughs>